Good to be with you guys. We're actually taking a little bit of a break, but not really, from our series in Nehemiah. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah. For those of you who are new, who haven't been here, we're trekking through Nehemiah, which is actually a memoir of a man named Nehemiah. And basically what's happening is that the Lord has kicked Israel out, out of the land. They are in exile. And Nehemiah is part of leading a group, a group of people back into the, into the land of Israel. And they, what they're doing is rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So to reflect, right, to, they're rebuilding Jerusalem to accurately reflect who God is, to be a good witness to who God is. So they are, um, we, last week we looked at chapter 3 of Nehemiah and we picked up on, we saw how God was using people from different perspectives. He had political leaders, spiritual leaders, business leaders, the merchants, um, makers of of gold, right? Were used by God coming together to build this wall, right? So, and this week, we're not in Nehemiah, but in the sovereignty of God, there's an amazing connection between what we looked at last week, what we've been looking at in Nehemiah, and what we're going to talk about this week, what I believe the Lord wants to say to us. Because we saw from last week that God rebuilds through people from different perspectives. But that raises a question. If you have different people from different perspectives, how are those people going to come together? What unifies them? So the answer to that key question of how these people are unified is our sermon topic for the day, and it's unified in humility. Okay, We're unified in humility. Our passage for today is going to be from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So turn there with me. Those Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 2. Here y'all still turning. That's a beautiful sound, the turn of pages yeah. in the Bible. Yeah. It's music to the Lord's ears. It's people getting into his word. Um, let's, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Everybody with me? Okay, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." Amazing words in the word of God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you uh, first for your person, for uh, the great privilege of even being able to know your name, being able to gather together to worship you through um, so many different ways. Um, we thank you, Lord, for your word um, that leads us and guides us and instructs us in righteousness. I pray, uh, Lord, for um, accuracy uh, to communicate your word well. Pray for tender hearts, mine included, to receive what you have to say to us. Um, Be with us, Lord, as we seek to hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. 
So we're, we're in Philippians chapter 2, um, and Philippians is um, a letter, a letter from Paul to the Philippian church. And before we dig into the section that we just read, I want to do some, some, some background, give you some context. And the reason why that's important is because if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is not like an encyclopedia, right? An encyclopedia, you just flip it open, you look up the entry you want. Let's say you want to look up humility and say, okay, humility defined as this and some examples. Read it, done, close it, right, we're good. The Bible's not like that. The Bible, it has a lot of different types of texts in it. This is a letter, right? So the, the passage we read is in the middle of the letter. It's, it's, there's stuff before and stuff after, right? So in order for us to really accurately understand what he's saying in this section, we need to understand what, what's the bigger picture, what's going on. So we're going to spend a little time, so stick with me as we kind of build some background, lay some context for the passage that we just read. So Philippians is a letter written by Paul, an apostle. At, at the time, he's probably in a Roman prison. He's either under house arrest or he's literally in a prison. We're not quite sure. Um, but he's locked up, right? And he's writing to the Philippian church, a church that he had planted on his second missionary journey. It's in an area called Macedonia. There was a time in Acts when he'd had a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. He'd gone into Macedonia, and he'd planted this church in, 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 in Philippi. And through that interaction, and he actually went back on his third missionary journey to Philippi, the Philippian church and Paul have built a tight, intimate relationship. They love him. He loves them. They care about him. They've been supporting his ministry. So when they hear that, oh, man, Paul is locked up. He's, on, he's not only just locked up, he's on trial for his life there's a real possibility that Paul could die. And so they are concerned about him. And so what they do is they, they, they get a gift together, they take a collection up, and they say, you know what, let's, let's take somebody from our congregation and send him to visit Paul and bring this gift to him. And the name of that guy is Epaphroditus. When Epaphroditus got to probably Rome where Paul was, he got sick either on the way or when he got there. And so Paul is now sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippian church and he's sending with them a letter, right? So that's, that's sort of the big picture of what's going on. Now, in this letter, Paul is doing a couple of things. And keep, keep, again, the context of he's on trial for his life. This might be the last thing he gets to write to them. He doesn't know if he's going to die or not. So he's writing this letter, sending it back to this church that he cares deeply about. And in the letter, he tries to do three things. The first thing he does is that he thanks God for them. He's grateful for these people. They have given him a gift. They've cared for him. They're concerned about him while he's in prison. They haven't, they haven't found, it, found his imprisonment so shameful that they forgot about him. They, they're still concerned, still want to be with him. And so he's thankful and grateful for them. That's the first thing. The second thing is he wants to let them know how he's doing because they're concerned about him, right? There's a relationship there. Imagine if Pastor E or one of us got locked up, right, taken away. You'd be concerned. What is going on with my brother? I want to know how they're doing. And so he writes, the second thing he writes to do is to let them know how he's doing, how, how things are going with him. The last thing, the third, the third kind of section that he, that he, the, a thing that he covers, is he wants to encourage and exhort them, right? So he might, this might be the very last thing he communicates. He could be on his way to heaven. This, is the, this might be the last opportunity to, to exhort, to encourage, to strengthen them. And so there's a section of the letter where he kind of goes through and kind of starts exhorting them. So those are sort of the three things that are happening in, in Philippians. And we can see this, it's kind of broken down all the way through the, through the letter. So let's look at chapter 1 in the verse 1. The first thing is that he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So this is an open letter. 
He's writing this to the entire church. It might have been read in a context like we are. We're all gathered together. Pastors are here. Deacons are here. All the saints are gathered together in one place. So it's an open letter written to everyone. And the first thing, right, so he starts in verse, verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So the first thing he's doing is he's thanking God for them. It's an affectionate um, section of the letter. He talks about in verse 7, he says, I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, I yearn for you all. There's a great deal of affectionate care, thanksgiving, gratitude for these people who are his brothers and sisters who have cared for him. But ultimately, ultimately, if you notice the way he ends this section, it ends in verse 11. His primary concern, even though he's grateful to them for the gift, even though he's expressing his affection for them, his primary concern is that, he says in verse 11, he's praying, he says, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so even in this first section, he's climaxing. He's, he's, he's leading them up to, I'm praying for you yeah. that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ so that God might be glorified. Yeah. He's centering them on the glory of God. That's good, Amen? So after this section, he transitions starting in verse 12 to let them know how he's doing. Verse, verse 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers. He said, I want to update you and what's happening to me, because I'm locked up, you're concerned about me, and I want to give you a sense of what's going on. So from verse 12 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 26 of chapter 1, he lays out what's, what's going on with them. He reassures them that he's doing okay and doing well, and he sets them an example of what Christ-centered suffering looks like. Help us, God. Okay? Look at verse 20. And he, he is locked up on trial for his life. And he says in verse 20, he says, it is my eager expectation. My e Can you imagine being eager when you're in prison on trial for your life? It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether I die or I get out of here, I want Christ to be honored in my body, is what he's saying. Then he continues that through verse 26, and he, again, he climaxes it. He ends it with a focus on the glory of God. He says, I want to, get, he says, I, I want to be released, in a sense, so that in me, not, not so that I can just be free and be with you, but he says, I want to come back to you so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. So in the first section Climax is the glory of Christ. The second section, the glory of Christ is his focus. And then he starts this third section of exhortation and encouragement, and again, it's centered on the glory of Christ. Verse 27 through the first verse of chapter 1, he introduces this section on exhortation. And the very first thing he says, he says, only, only in the sense of whether I die or whether I, I come and see you again, only, let this be true of you. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now that should sound real familiar to you, because we've been looking at Nehemiah about people from different perspectives coming together in one mind. In, 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 in Nehemiah, the, the, the mission, the focus is on rebuilding a wall. 
and the name of the opponents are Sanballat and Tobiah. In Philippi, there's no wall, but there is still the missional call to reflect the glory of God. In Philippi, in Philippi there, the, Sanballat and Tobiah aren't there, but there's still opposition. And so just like in Nehemiah, and the same in Philippi, the same here, God is concerned that we would be focused on mission and that we'd be dealing well with opposition. That's good. Amen? So we see the connections between what happened in, 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 in Jerusalem, what happened in Philippi, and even what happened right here in North Philadelphia. God is concerned that we would be focused on mission and dealing well with opposition, not frightened anything. He says, this is a clear sign to them, the unity of, of the believers, a sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And then he starts in the section we're going to focus on. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And there's a parallelism between what he's saying in verse 27, one spirit, one mind, striving side by side, and what he says in verse 1 uh, or verse 2, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. So again, keep in mind what he's doing here. This is, this is his exhortation. He's, he's at the end of his life, right? And he's, he's communicating to this church. And the very first thing he says to them is walk worthy of the gospel. Yeah. But he says that the way you walk worthy of the gospel is through unity, right? He says in verse 27, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Repeats it again in chapter 2. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Why is he doing this? Why is he harping on this? And that leads, The reason he's harping on it is, is, is our first point. He says unity is a prerequisite. Unity is a prerequisite for missional effectiveness. You cannot walk worthy. You cannot represent God well if you're not unified. It's a pre so he harps on it. He says it in multiple ways. So if we want to say it another way, you cannot have missional effectiveness without first having unity. To pick up the theme from, the, from Nehemiah, God cannot build, use a people to build if they are not first unified. So he, he, he jumps into unity. So why, why is unity so important? Well, even from a military context, whenever you're gonna, whenever you're gonna give a group of people a mission, and they're going to expect opposition. There has to be unity. You have to have unit cohesion before they get into battle. Right? And so they practice together. They shoot together. They sleep together. They eat together. So that when they get into battle, they know how to fight together. If there's no unity, they can't be effective. It's the same thing with the church. On the football field, right? Offensive line. you got to practice together. you got to move as one. Because that's how you deal with opposition. And so he is concerned... For the church to be one, to be unified, because apart from that unity, there can be no effectiveness. There is no building apart from a solid, unified group of people together moving in the same direction, dealing well with opposition. And so he focuses on that unity. But what does unity look like and how, how do we achieve it? It's a great thing, right? We need it to be effective. We have to be one in order to deal with opposition. But where does it come from? So let's look at chapter, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, if he starts with saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affection and sympathy. He gives this list, right? This list of things that the believers share together. And what he's pointing to is that unity is grounded in the finished work of Christ. It's grounded in sharing the shared inheritance of having Christ in common. We are unified by centering on what we share in Christ. So from the Philippians series, from the Ephesians series where we looked at our identity as believers, let's flip back over there real quick. Let's flip back one book, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Talking about our unity, where our unity comes from. It says, for he himself, he being Christ, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So God has reconciled not, Jesus has reconciled not only us to God, but also us to one another. He has given us a shared inheritance in him and united us in him by his work on the cross. And so our unity is grounded, it's achieved by the work of Christ on the cross. Chapter 1 of that same book of Ephesians talks about the work of the Spirit. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, our inheritance, our shared inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you flip back to Philippians, and Paul is pointing them to this shared inheritance, this thing they have in common. We have encouragement in Christ together, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection, sympathy, all these things we have in Christ. And so while I might not have, I might not, we may not share a race, but we have the same spirit. We may not share an ethnicity, but we have the same comfort from love. I might not even live in the same zip code, but I have the affection and sympathy from being in Jesus. And so because of our shared inheritance, the thing that we have in common, we can come together as one, united by focusing on the shared inheritance of what Christ has achieved for us. Amen? Amen. Unified by our shared inheritance. And so let me, let me give you an example. About a week and a half ago, my wife's grandfather passed away. Uh, and we're, we're from a pretty big family, a lot of people all over the country, some even all over the world. We live in Philly, people from New York, Minnesota, Texas, all over. And we all came together in Orlando at the same place, the same time, for a service to remember this man. Because we had, despite all the things we had that were different about us, all the things that were going on, we had a shared memory, a shared inheritance in this person. And it's the same thing for us. How greater is our shared inheritance in Jesus, our shared inheritance in knowing what God has done for us? So regardless of what differences might separate us, what unites us is so much greater. And so we come together around that, united by our inheritance in Jesus. Amen. Amen? So he calls them to oneness, to unity, based on the shared inheritance that they have in Jesus. Because without unity, there can be no missional effectiveness. And not only is it about our shared inheritance, but it's about our effective witness. Jesus, in John 17, verse 22, he prays to the Father, and he says something really, really interesting. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, them being his people. 
that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And then he says something, he says, so that, he says, why have I done this? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So the work of Christ to unify his people is not just about the people, but it's about us being an effective witness to what God has done. Our unity reflects the fact that God is among us, that God has been with us, that he's done something different with this group of people to make them one, and only he could do it. Paul picks that up in Philippians um, chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse uh, 28. Notice what he says. He says, he says, he talks about the unity. He talks about them not being frightened. Then he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So the unit, what's at stake in unity is, one, we need to come together around our shared inheritance, but also, apart from unity, we can't witness. We can't witness to the fact that God has united us. And so having that, having that oneness, that, that unity speaks to the, even the words he uses, having the one mind. He's talking about people who are so in sync, moving in the same direction. I move, you move. We all know our part. They're so together, it's almost like they have one mind controlling them. If you ever see the Marines move in the, in their, when they're doing their marching, it's all one together. And that's the picture he's, he's painting for them, that with the one mind, the unity of Christ, our shared inheritance, we are reflecting the beauty of what Jesus has done in showing off how God has been among us by making us one. Man, and so unity is a prerequisite for missional effectiveness. It's achieved by Christ and grounded in our shared inheritance in him. And it's a witness to the world that God is at work among us. And so that's why unity is so key. That's why he focuses so much on be one, have the same mind, be unified. But then he continues and he says something interesting. Verse 3 of chapter 2. He says, do nothing. So after having called them to oneness, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now what's interesting is that after having called them to oneness, the first thing he says is do nothing from something else. Literally he's saying take no action, right? Take no action from a heart of rivalry or a heart of conceit. So he's called them to oneness and he transitions to this, do nothing. Why is that? It's because rivalry and conceit are like cancer for unity. They undermine, they destroy, they tear apart unity. And if unity is necessary for missional effectiveness, right, then unity requires humility. You cannot have rivalry and conceit and have, and have um, unity. So you have to have humility to make unity work. So that's the second point that he wants to, to drive home for them. First, you have to be one. Second, in order to be one, you have to have humility. So let's look at these words. This rivalry and conceit that he says, first, do nothing from these things. Rivalry is really about, it's a heart of competition with a brother or a sister. Rivalry and envy, rivalry and envy are very closely related. The heart of rivalry sees the church as an arena for competition. It divides the church into factions and seeks exaltation of its own faction and to tear down opposing factions. It undermines the unity of the church by pitting one against another. A heart of rivalry sees threats in God using another person. So to think about the wall, 
We're all building the wall together, working for the glory of God. But maybe I'm focusing on this section, and your wall looks a little, your part of the wall looks a little nicer than my part of the wall. And I don't like that because I want to look good. And so in rivalry, maybe I'll go over and sabotage your part because I need my part to look better. Right? That's what rivalry does. It tears down the ability of the people to come together as one, to focus on mission, to move forward, to get things done. And so he says to them, do nothing. Do nothing. Literally, do nothing from, from this heart of rivalry or conceit. Do not, if your heart is centered on competing, if you're comparing, if you're envying, stop. Because it will destroy the unity of the church. And for the church to be effective, the church has to be united. And Paul himself had actually experienced this rivalry. So look back at verse 14 of chapter 1. Because what's happened is that Paul is a, Paul is a leader, right? Paul is a leader in the church, in many churches. He is, he's preaching, he's writing, he's, he's disciplining, he's doing all these things, and he gets locked up. That creates a vacuum, right? You had a leader who was doing all this stuff, and now he's in prison. Can't do all those things anymore, right? So there's a vacuum created in leadership, and so people have to step up into that role to fill the vacuum that Paul once played, right? So, but, but, there, but it's interesting how people do that. He says, verse 14, he says, most of the bro- he says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the, Lord, speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so Paul, these people are doing a good thing, right? They're, they're stepping up into leadership. They're, they're, they're communicating the gospel. But why are they doing it? Not because they want the gospel proclaimed, but because they want themselves to be in a position of leadership to tear down Paul, to take advantage of the fact that he's not around anymore. So I'm going to show you, Paul, I'm going to preach the gospel better, better than you can preach it. They won't need you anymore. I'm going to take over. It's a heart of rivalry. Right? And so in the church, particularly in the church, it's not the people doing the wrong things you got to worry about. It's people doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And so he says to them, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Just stop it. Don't even, don't even pursue it. Now, conceit is similar to, but is different than rivalry. Conceit or, or pride, it's an overestimation of one's own worth. It's a form of self-worship. The heart of conceit sees the church as an opportunity to pursue position and power. It is concerned with securing rights and privileges. And so when, this, when people don't recognize those rights, the heart of, of conceit is deeply offended. Because they worship themselves, themselves, conceited people don't just see factions, they actually create them by focusing people on themselves and on their goals rather than on Christ and the gospel mission. And so it tears away at unity. And so he calls this church, he calls every church, this church, our church, churches all over, do nothing from rivalry and conceit because we cannot be effective if these cancerous heart attitudes are throughout us. So what needs to be here then? If I'm supposed to do nothing from a heart attitude of rivalry, 
nothing from a heart attitude of conceit, then what's, what's supposed to control my heart? Humility. We are unified in our humility. Unified in our humility. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Note that humility is not just the absence of rivalry or conceit. It is the presence of rightly ordered priorities. Humility is very commonly thought to be just about us, how I look at myself. But in the context of what Paul is saying here, you can't be humble outside community because humility requires how you interact with others. It's how you assess and esteem other people. So it's not just about you. It's about community. Humility requires community to live out. Requires community to live out. The term count here, it means to think a particular way, to consider something a particular way. It means to set your mind, to esteem something in a particular way. The first person we count, the first other we count, is Christ. We put him first. And you can see this in Paul's example. right? Again, on trial for his life, verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There is no higher thing but him. So when he first counts, he counts Christ exalted above all. right? The cure for rivalry and conceit is to worship Jesus. Worship him and not yourself. And you will, you will, you will feel hum, humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Counting the Lord first. Matthew, and this is not new. This has always been the way God has worked. Matthew 22, verse 36. Jesus has asked, What's the greatest commandment in, 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 the, in the greatest commandment? He, he says the first thing, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. It starts there. Get your heart right with the Lord. Right? So we count Christ first as exalted. And then we count others, other people, other believers as above ourselves. The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That orders yourself right. Rightly ordered priorities means you're humble. Get Christ first, get others second, and you last. That is the cure for rivalry you can see. That is the definition of humility, and it happens in community. Community with the Lord and community with his people in order to be humility. And humility enables you to suffer well. Because in, look back in, remember we talked about how Paul himself had dealt with rivalry, right? He's locked up, suffering. His own brothers are attacking him, seeking to take his position. Verse 18 of chapter 1. How does he respond to that? What does humility look like? He says, what then? Right? Of those who are seeking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. He's like, I don't care. Because Jesus, even though they're doing this thing to afflict me, they're proclaiming the gospel. Because Jesus is first in my mind, I'm happy. I'm afflicted. They're afflicting me in my imprisonment. I'm locked up. But I rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. I rejoice that the gospel is getting out to God's people. So even though it's harmful to me, I rejoice because Christ is first and his people are second and I'm last instead of the other way around, right? If it had been about Paul, he would have been, I need to stop those people. I need, to, I, need to, I need to make sure they don't take my position. And he would have, in a sense, in trying to get back at them, harmed the gospel mission. But because his priorities are right, he says the mission is moving forward 
And even though I'm harmed, I rejoice. I'm glad. Go ahead, afflict me. Because the gospel is, is, is getting preached. Amen? Amen? That's what God calls us to. Rightly ordered priorities. The essence of humility. Now one thing to be clear about, right? the next thing he says is, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, one thing to be clear is that humility is not the lack of interests. That's false humility. Pretending like you don't have interests, like you don't care about yourself, is, is fake. It's false, right? So he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. He assumes you have interests. Amen. You do. It's okay. <laughs> humility is widening that perspective of who you, whose interests you're looking after, right? He, love your neighbor as yourself. We know you love yourself. Just love other people as you love yourself, right? So humility is not the lack of interest. It's a, it's a widening of that perspective, right? The widening of that perspective. I'm pursuing the interests of Christ. I'm pursuing the interests of others even as I would pursue my own interests. Loving others even as I would love myself. Amen? So he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he says, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is just amazing, because what, what you've already seen is that Christ is the provider of our unity, right? He, he, our, our unity is grounded in what Christ has done to give us a shared inheritance. But Christ is not only the provider of our unity, he's the provider of our humility that unifies us. Because he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus has purchased it for us. He has won for us a mind of humility. And so to be humble, we simply come and take it. Have what's yours. It, it, it's offered to you. I've won it for you. Take it. Have this mind which is yours. And so our, our third point is that Christ is both the provider and the prototype of humility. Christ is both the provider and the prototype of humility. Now, some may debate the presence of the possessive here, the yours, but the point is, is that the righteousness of Christ is given to us through Jesus, through faith in Christ. Look over at chapter 3. Um, chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, he says, I want to be found in him. Verse 9, chapter 3. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so the righteousness, humility is righteousness. To have this is not to strive for. You don't get it by, by, by saying, I'm, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to abase myself. You come to Jesus and receive unity and humility. It's provided for us. He's the provider of it. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus says, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's not only the provider, he's the example. He himself, he's the prototype. He himself is, is gentle and lowly in heart. And so Paul, he says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Receive what God has provided. And then he says, look at the prototype. Look at the example, the trendsetter, the one who paves the path for you. He says, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus, though he was fully God, fully in the essence of God, had everything, had tens of thousands of angels worshiping him, crying, holy, holy, holy. He himself did not, notice the word count. He did not esteem himself, didn't esteem something so, so good, so great, so, that he was worthy of. He didn't hold on tightly to it. Do you hold on tightly to your rights? Do you pursue and hold tightly to it? Look at the prototype of Jesus, who though he was worthy of it, we, we, we don't need, we are, we're not worthy of rights, we're not worthy of praise, but we pursue it. Look at the prototype of Jesus, who though he was in equality with God, receiving all the benefits the, of being God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so follow his example. And a couple, couple of points. What does this look like? Maybe you have um, a, a great gift and you, you can sing or you can play or you, you can do something that, that, that's public. But maybe the mission need is for somebody to clean the toilets or somebody to empty the trash. Are you more focused on your own privileges and your own rights? I should be up here on the stage. Or will you do what's necessary to advance the mission? Will you look for a place to plug in that advances the mission or are you going to be trying to pull people in a different direction because that's your vision? Follow the example of Christ. Whose interest did he pursue? He pursued the interest of the Father and the interest of others. And he himself had no need to. He had the right to be in eternal splendor and glory. But he set an example for us Obeying the Father, making himself obedient, taking the low road. He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself, emptied himself of glory. And then once he became a human, he humbled himself again. So being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our prototype. This is our example. He is the one to whom we look. When you want unity, when you want humility, come to Jesus. Come to me, he says. If you labor and are heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. And so, so believers, Epiphany Fellowship, if you want unity, which we absolutely need for missional effectiveness, then come to Jesus and receive human unity. Focus on our shared inheritance of what Christ has done. And if you want humility, come and receive from the one who is lowly of heart. Come and receive. Repent of your pride. Repent of your rivalry. And come to Jesus and receive. Receive humility. And so that, that's the answer. It's not about striving. It's not about laboring. It's not about false humility. It's about coming to Jesus. He's the answer. He sets us free from our pride and our rivalry, and he unifies us. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we would understand and realize that we share Christ in common. And that as we all come to him, we would receive unity and humility to be missionally effective. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's none like you. You are absolutely unique, and we thank you, Lord, for being the provider of everything we need. And not just the provider, but the one who sets an example for us. If we have any doubts about what it looks like, we just have to look at you and receive, Lord. So thank you for setting an example for us in unity, in humility, in missional effectiveness. We pray for ourselves as a church that we would come to you, that we would be a people marked 
by humility, unified in our humility, counting you where you need to be above all, and then counting others as more significant than ourselves. Thank you for your word that leads us. Apply it to us, Lord, we pray. In your name we pray. Amen.